We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your mercy, for your grace, to take us as we were, but to transform us. Help us as we look into your word to see more of how you want to continue to do that work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're doing this sermon series here for about the first four months of 2017 in which we're taking an overview of the Bible. We're going to spend most of our time in the Old Testament. Now, my, my one-sentence overview of the Bible is this. For His glory, God's plan is to save us and to make us holy so that we can be with Him forever. Now, that would be too short of a sermon, so I will keep on saying more than that, but that's kind of the gist of what God is at work doing in the Bible. Last Sunday, Pastor Josh showed you how God saves his people. It happens through the blood of the Lamb. Now, we're familiar with that in the New Testament, but Josh pointed out in the Old Testament the Passover story, which is so important, and we'll get back to it today a little bit. It's a reminder of how God gets us out of slavery to sin. As God got his people out of slavery in Egypt, God also gets us out of our slavery to sin. Now, after the Passover, there was this amazing miracle, the parting of the Red Sea, which, I mean, if you were to see one miracle, you'd probably want to see the resurrection. If you were to see another miracle in the Bible, you might want to see the parting of the Red Sea. To watch, I mean, can you imagine a wall of water on each side? God's people get through safely, and then the waters close in on their enemies. It was an amazing miracle. And you would think that after seeing such a miracle, the people would have had amazing faith. Have you ever heard people say in our day and age, oh, if only God would blank, then I'd believe in him. If only he'd heal my cancer. If only he'd help me win the lottery, then I'd believe in him. Well, the Israelites saw one of the most amazing miracles ever, and it's not long after that, just a few chapters in Exodus, where they're complaining about how God isn't providing for them. So you see, it's not enough just to see a miracle from God. There needs to be more work that's done on our hearts. And that's why we want to keep advancing this story, because we see that God has more that he wants to do in us. And it brings us to our story today, where we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. Now, oftentimes, when people today look at the Ten Commandments, or the rules of Christianity, they might say, why do there have to be so many rules? You ever heard it said that way? You ever said it that way yourself, maybe? Now, some people would suggest that God just picked some of the most fun things that we can do here on earth and told us not to do them. For other people, there's this hatred towards God's commands. There's this, this hatred as if to say, what right does God have to tell me to do anything? Or for other people, they, they don't think that God said it at all. They think it's just human ideas that we came up with some commands. And who are we to say what's good or what's evil for some other person? And for other people, and this probably includes all of us, we struggle with these commands. We struggle to live up to them. Now, any way you slice it, there's tension as we get rules from God. So why does God give commands? Why does he do it? Well, that's what I want to address today. And what I want to assure you of is that there is a good reason that God gives us commands. And the commands help advance the story of the Bible. So we're going to look at Exodus 19 through 20 today. We're not going to look at every verse. We're going to look at three sections of it. The first section that I would like to look at is the section in Exodus 19, starting in verse 3. <clears throat> then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, 
and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. So this passage is located not far after the Red Sea crossing. In fact, it says it's in the third month. And at that time, Moses had a series of conversations with God. And one thing that we must not overlook as we get into verses 3 and 4 is that our God is still a speaking God. Remember, very beginning of the Bible, God said, let there be light. And then as we advance the story, God spoke to Abraham. And then we see many times in the life of Moses that God spoke to Moses. And here specifically, it wasn't just to Moses, it was also to be for all the people. And I'd just like to remind you that we still have a speaking God today. His word is living and active. And I believe that God will speak to your heart as you seek him, as you listen to him. And then in verse 4, we see God giving this reminder of what he did in Egypt. Now, Pastor Josh and I have both been mentioning how this keeps coming up in the Bible. And, and as you read your Bible, it's not uncommon to see God saying, I'm the God who brought you up out of Egypt. It's super important. It keeps coming out. That's who God is. And he's doing this here in Exodus to continue to draw a people to himself. That's what he did when he called Abram from his homeland to go to the land that God would show him. And now God is expanding that process. It's not just Abram and his family. It's now the, the people of God, the Israelites. And then moving on to verse 5 of our passage, we see that God initiated an agreement or a covenant, if you will. In fact, our Bible is separated into two parts along these lines. We have the Old Covenant, which we're going to look at today as we read the Ten Commandments. And then we also have the New Covenant. Now, both of these covenants are important. Both of them were to be followed by faith. I don't like this idea where some people say, yeah, in the Old Testament it was just obedience, and in the New Testament it's all about faith. It's not like that. God doesn't change. He's always been the God of grace, and he's always wanted us to respond by faith. So even, this is one of the things I want you to get about the Ten Commandments. As we see God giving the Ten Commandments, it was an act of grace. He was telling his people how they could live with him, how they were supposed to follow him. Okay, so in verse 5, that's where God asked for obedience to the covenant. He was about to give what we might call laws, but it's interesting, in these two chapters, they're not called laws, they're called words from God. And if the people were to obey God's words and keep his covenant, they would become his treasured possession, which I I love that phrase, treasured possession. It translates one word in Hebrew, and the word implies something of great value. Usually it's something that a king has. So you can think of a king and all the treasure that he has, but this isn't just all that treasure, it's a very special part of that treasure. So the whole world belongs to God. He made all the nations, but... His people who will obey him and follow him, they will be his treasured possession. It shows us God's heart. And again, we, we might look at the Ten Commandments as rules, but from God's perspective, it was about how his people could walk with him in a relationship. So don't miss out on God's heart, and don't miss out on the, the need of the people to respond with obedience. 
God wants to draw a people to himself. His people are to obey him. Then moving on to verse 6, we see what kind of people they were to be. They would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there would be something special about these people. As priests, they would serve God. And as holy, they would become like God himself who is holy. That's, that's what God wants to do in his people. Is he wants to make us more and more holy. Or as we'd say it in the New Testament, he wants to make us more and more like Jesus. And this is important language. This kingdom of priests and a holy nation, it shows up in the New Testament. So this, this isn't just something that God was doing in Exodus. This is something that shows us the heart of God and what he wants to do in his people even later on. Look at 1 Peter 2.9 with me, where it says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. So this is the heart of God to draw us to himself that we might be with him and serve him. It's also in Revelation 5.10. Let's see. Um, what am I doing? Uh, oh, I've missed... I mislabeled that one. That's Revelation 5.10, where Jesus says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So what God did in Exodus 19 is super important in drawing people to himself and explaining how they should live with him. And then in Exodus 19.7, Moses gave the words to the people. How would they respond? Well, I love how they responded in verse 8, where they said, we will do everything the Lord has said. Their response to the revelation from God was to say, yep, he's the one that we should follow. Let's follow him. So here again, just like with the, uh, excuse me, just like the Abraham story, God said, go, and Abraham went. That's the synopsis of faith, the, the shortest way that maybe I can say it. God said, go, Abraham went. Here, it's the same thing with the people. God gave his words to the people, and the people agreed to obey and to follow them. So you see, the rules that we're about to see coming down from God weren't just thumped down on them as a burden. The rules were given to them that God might draw his people to himself, and that his people might serve him. So, my big idea for today is that God wants us to belong to him and to serve him. We'll see that in the Exodus story, and we'll see it in our lives as well as we, we think about how to apply this passage to our lives. God wants us to belong to him and to serve him. Now, as the story progresses, God and Moses continue to have conversations throughout the rest of chapter 19. We'll just skip over that, and we'll get into the, the Ten Commandments now in chapter 20. And we didn't have room for all of these in your bulletin, so I'll just read through them now. Starting in Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. Again, they're words. Not laws, they're words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. 
six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So again, with rules. And again, this is where people might say, what's with all the rules? But in our right minds, we know that rules are good. For example, my family has been uh, taking advantage of our membership at the YMCA by going swimming occasionally. And one thing that you'll notice as you're about to get into the swimming pool at the YMCA is that there is a list of rules there. Now, we might say, oh, do there really need to be all those rules? But... The rules are very good. For example, the rule not to run on the pool deck. You don't want to end up like this guy. You don't want to slip and crack your head. Or there's another rule that I'm really glad that's there. It talks about how if there are people that have open wounds, that they're not supposed to go into the pool. I'm pretty glad that if somebody comes like, with this massive head wound, that he's not just allowed to jump into the swimming pool with my family. That would kind of ruin the night for us. So we know that rules are good. And in his mercy, God has given us rules. He knows better how we should live, and it goes better for us when we follow them. So let's, let's take a look. Let's kind of walk quickly through this list of Ten Commandments. And actually, I want to just point out something before we start. In verse 2, God talks about himself again as the God who brought his people out of Egypt. You see, we have an active God. He is the God who rescues and also in verse 11, one thing about our God, he is the God who created the heavens and the earth. Okay, two just very important things about God. He created, he rescues his people. As such, he is worthy of worship, and he is worthy to be obeyed. So let's talk about some of those things, to be obeyed. Let's look at the first two commandments together. Look uh, in verses 3 and 4. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Now, the first two commandments remind us that there's only one God and that we shouldn't reduce him to some idol or image. And in commandment number one, it's not that God is just chief among other gods. It's that to suggest that there could be any God alongside him would diminish him. So the first commandment is really a reminder for us not to elevate anything or anyone up to the level of God. That would be to diminish who he is. Then the second commandment is a reminder for us not to bring God down to our level. So do you see how that, that one kind of works? Don't elevate anything up to the level of God, and then don't bring God down by treating him as if he were an idol. The, the nations around the Israelites, they had all sorts of idols that they would worship, idols that couldn't speak to them, that, that couldn't act on their behalf, and were not to treat God as if he is like that. Then moving on to the third commandment in verse 7, we see that God's people are not to misuse his name. The name of the Lord our God means something, and we are not to diminish it. So, so really the first three commandments so far have to do with not diminishing who God is. And I just want to say something about taking the Lord's name in vain. 
I want you to think about a, a situation in your life where somebody around you might take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, for instance, uh, if you're playing basketball and somebody misses a shot, they might, they might take the name of the Lord in vain. Or um, if somebody makes a stupid move in traffic, somebody in the car might take the name of the Lord in vain. And I, I read it this way this week. Um, there was a theologian who said, if you were to ask that person who just took the Lord's name in vain, why did you do that? Why did you take the name of my Lord and use it to represent your anger or frustration? They might say to you, well, I didn't mean anything by it. But that's exactly the problem. Do you get it? To take the name of the Lord our God, which is incredibly important, and to use it to mean nothing, or to use it to just mean anger or frustration, is to diminish who he is. And let me just caution you all in here now. Our society is so into this. It's amazing that our, our society that, that wouldn't go to a prayer meeting, that wouldn't go to a church, is not at all ashamed to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. And it's become so common in our society that there is a danger that we would follow that pattern. And I've heard it from Christians. And I'm, I'm not here to judge, and we've all fallen short, but I just want you to know to be careful not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. It is a meaningful name. We should not take it lightly. Let's go into the fourth commandment about keeping the Sabbath holy. Now this one is interesting because of the Ten Commandments here, Nine of them are repeated in the New Testament, but this one isn't. So one of the great theological questions that pastors love to ask is, are we required to follow the Sabbath command in the Ten Commandments? Well, I don't need to get into all of the debate, but I do want to give my response, and my response is to go back even further than the Ten Commandments, to go back to Genesis 1 and 2, where God created in six days and rested on the seventh, and gave that as a pattern to his people. So I would suggest to you that whether or not it is a New Testament command, that the Sabbath principle is a great one for us to follow. In fact, I would suggest to you that the Sabbath is a gift from God. In fact, I would say it goes even farther than that. We were created in God's image, and God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh, and he told us to follow that pattern. Now, it wasn't until I was in college that I started taking a Sabbath day a week, and immediately I found it to be a gift from God. I found it to be a, a refresher to my soul. It's, it's like I have a, a note from my doctor that says I don't have to work today. It's like, sweet, I get to take the day off from work. But then also there's that part about there about keeping it holy. And that's a reminder for us that the Sabbath should also include worship. That there should be a day set aside for not working, but also for worshiping God. So I just want to encourage you, because of who you are created in the image of God, I want to urge you to get in the regular practice of, of taking a Sabbath day every week, taking one day off of work, taking one day to especially remember to worship God. Okay, um, it's often said that the first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God, and then the last six commandments have to do with our relationships with other people, and there's certainly some truth in that. Um, but I do want to remind you that even as we get into our relationships with other people, that affects our relationship with God. But I do want to move into commandments uh, 5 through 10 now. And these are the ones that make a lot of sense for society. So again, not just between us and God, but now between us and other people as we live together as the people of God. So it's a good idea for children to honor their father and mother. It's the job of parents to instruct you children, and you children should listen. You know this, kids, right? Kids, you know that you should listen to your parents. 
Okay? Actually, it's something that God tells you to do. Do you know that you kids can worship God by obeying your parents? It's a good one. Then also, as we get to the next three, we see that we shouldn't murder or commit adultery or steal. Think of how all three of those things can break down a society. And, and we see this all over the place. When these things happen, it tears apart community. And it's the same thing with the next commandment, with lying. Lying tears down community. And I would say it's even the same thing with the tenth one about not coveting. In coveting, we elevate things over people. We, we look at the things that our neighbors have and we get more concerned about those things than we are about our neighbor. And that's not right. And I think that's why God tells us not to do it. So it's interesting, these Ten Commandments, most societies have laws against a lot of these things, like laws against murder, laws against stealing. We even have laws against lying in our courts. It's called perjury. You're not supposed to do it. Um, but then again, think about how hard it would be to have a law that says you could never lie anywhere. Think of how hard it would be to enforce that. And maybe that's the reason why we don't have that law in our nation, is because it couldn't possibly be enforced, but that doesn't make it right. God, God's commandments go further. They go into our hearts. And it's the same thing with coveting. So there's no laws against coveting. So imagine, um, imagine if there were. Imagine your neighbor drives home with a new car one day and you look at that car and you say, man, I'm jealous. wish I could have a new car like that. Then imagine if the, the police knock on your door and they say, we heard what you thought. You're going to have to come with us. Well, God has given us the command that we are not to covet. Because the commands are meant to get down and to, to show us what's going on in our hearts. And even Jesus viewed the commandments this way because Jesus wasn't just against murder or adultery. He revealed to us that wicked thoughts or lustful thoughts put us in violation of the commands. So perhaps the best way to understand the Ten Commandments is that God is asking his people to be holy because he is holy. In fact, that's a verse that gets repeated both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament where God says, be holy because I am holy. So what he's doing here in the Ten Commandments is he's revealing who he is. Even though it looks like he's just telling us what to do and what not to do, what he's actually doing is showing us who he is. And in his mercy, he tells us how to live and how to live with him. So these commandments are important for us as we consider our relationship with God. And for those of you that are doing homework assignments, here's your homework assignment for the week. Look up the Ten Commandments in the New Testament to see how the New Testament speaks about these commands. And if you don't know where they are, one way you could do it is you could find a Bible that has cross-references and look it up in the Old Testament and it'll point you towards the New Testament. And what we'll see is that as we follow God's ways by faith, it actually brings freedom which is the opposite of what we might think. We might think that it would just bring burden, that it would just make us subservient to somebody and there would be no fun. But actually, and we'll dive into this a little bit more later, following God's ways is refreshing for us because he knows what's best. It's like the swimming pool analogy that I used earlier. It's way more fun to follow the rules and have a fun time in the swimming pool with your family than it is to have one of your kids run on the pool deck and have to get everybody to the emergency room. So the rules are good. But there's one other thing I want to mention that the Ten Commandments do to us. And this is the one I warned you about earlier. They point out with precision accuracy how we fall short. So let me ask you some questions. Have you ever lied? 
Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever stolen something? Have you ever coveted something? Or, like Jesus said, have you ever been angry with someone or looked lustfully at anyone? If you've answered yes to any of those questions, it puts you in violation of God's commands. And if you've you've answered no to all those questions, you're a liar, and it puts you in violation of all God's commands. And we learn in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So we can't go up to God and say, well, God, yeah, I know I messed up those one or two times, but uh, don't you see the rest of my life where I got it better? No, it's, I, I heard this analogy that if uh, somebody's on trial for rape, they, they can't go to the judge. Well, judge, haven't you seen all the good things that I've done and all those people that I've helped in my life? And the judge would say, sorry, you are convicted. You are guilty of your crime. And that's the way it is for us. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of God's standard. And as it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So we need to be rescued like the Israelites who were in slavery in Egypt and could not rescue themselves, we need to be rescued from death. Now, oftentimes when I preach, what I would do now is I would look ahead to the New Testament and show you the cross of Jesus Christ. There's a famous saying by a a famous British preacher that he said, just as all roads in, in Britain lead to London, so all passages in the Bible lead to the cross. And that's what I would often do here. But I want to do something a little different today. I want to go back and show you how God has been foreshadowing that story. The stuff that we've already looked at in the past few weeks, think back to the Passover. How were the Israelites saved on that first night of the Passover? As Pastor Josh told us last Sunday, they were saved by the blood of the Lamb, by slaughtering the Lamb and by sprinkling the blood on the door frames. They were passed over. They were spared. So anyone who was covered by the blood of the Lamb would be saved. Well, now here, New Testament, we see that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's called that. And we are saved by his blood. If you are covered by his blood, your sins will not be counted against you. You will not face death. Your body may die, but your soul will not. So the question is then, who's covered by the blood of the lamb? Well, let's go back even further, even before the Passover. Let's go back to the Abraham story. God said go, and Abraham went. How did Abraham get in on the blessings that God bestowed on him? He got in on them by faith. That's chapter 12. Then we we look ahead to chapter 15, where God gave Abraham a promise, and Abraham believed it. It says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So our righteousness comes not from our adherence to the law, because as we've already established, we would all fall short. Our righteousness comes because of the blood of the Lamb as we put our faith in Him. That's the gospel message. That's what God has been showing us in the story so far. So we're only, in my, page, in my Bible, just 92 pages in, and we've already seen this wonderful foreshadowing of the gospel message. Isn't it amazing how God is weaving this story together? So have you received Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Have you recognized that you are a sinner, that you need to be covered by his blood? Have you given your life to follow him as Lord, as Master? That you would be a servant, devoting the rest of your life in service to him? Okay, let's move on now to our last section. This is the shortest one, verses 18 through 20. 
When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And I I just want to point out some things about fear here in verse 20. The people were told not to be afraid, but then they were told that the fear of God was to be with them. How do we understand that? Were they supposed to fear or not fear? Well, I think a good illustration, and I've used this one before, uh, is the lion Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Aslan was a ferocious lion, in many ways representing Jesus in those books. And to hear Aslan roar is to be terrified, to be stopped in your tracks. And for his enemies, they, they would even be stopped in their tracks, and they would have this terrible sense of fear of what would happen to them because the lion has roared. Yet, Aslan in those books and movies was so gentle to those who were with him that they could pet him as if he were a house cat. But even so, those people who were with him knew that they didn't want to disobey him. They saw what would happen to the enemies of the lion and they didn't want to be on the wrong side of him. And I think that's a good understanding for us of what it means to fear the Lord. That yes, we can be with him. He is our friend. He is gentle to us like a mother gathering her chicks, like a father guiding his children. But we never want to put ourselves in opposition against him. So the fear of the Lord is to remain with us, like Moses said here, to keep us from sinning. Yet we don't need to fear because we know that God is with us. Um, I like to say that Exodus 20.20 helps us to have 20.20 vision. That there should be this holy sense of awe among us that we don't want to follow the way of sin. Yet this awesome remembrance of the grace of God that he'll cleanse us from all sin. It's like one of the lines in Amazing Grace which says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved." Isn't that cool? How hundreds of years ago somebody put that in a song. That's, or I like even better how the Lord said it in De- Deuteronomy 5.29 which is a similar passage just following the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. It says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. You see, without God's words, we would be tempted to go in the wrong direction. What we would probably do without God's words is that we would turn ourselves into God. We're supposed to live our lives to give God glory, but what we would do, almost inevitably, is that we would go our own way. We would do what we think is best for us, what would give us glory. And what have we done then? If we have turned ourselves into gods, we've committed idolatry. So I think what God does here is he gives us his word so that we might recognize that he is God. And remember, the first three of those commands tell us not to diminish God. Not to turn anything or anyone, including ourselves, into God. So it's really a mercy from God to remind us who he is and the fact that we should worship him. So I just, <coughs> excuse me, I just want to have you analyze your hearts for a moment and ask this question. Who are you living for? You're living for God to give him glory because he is the one true God or are you living your life for yourself? It's amazing how easy it can be for us to stray into that place where we would live for us and not for God. 
And, and that just leads me now to what I want to do in this last section of my sermon and just ask, what does it mean for us today? We're looking at something from the Old Covenant, Exodus 19 and 20. How should we view them today? Remember our big idea? God wants us to belong to him and to serve him. That wasn't just true in Exodus. That's true all throughout the Bible. He wants us to be with him and to serve him. And in his mercy, he's told us how he wants us to live. And part of that means he wants us to have faith. Faith like Abraham did. Faith like the Israelites did when they said, we will do all that you say. We're supposed to have faith in Jesus Christ. And part of that faith means obedience. And that is not just an Old Testament thing. That's that's one of the, the big lessons I want you to get from today. Obedience isn't just an Old Testament thing. Listen to how Jesus said it in John 15, 9-11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Now that's a really tender verse, isn't it? Jesus wants us to remain in his love. But look how Jesus said it would happen next. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Our obedience leads to joy. Why? Because we were created to submit to God. We aren't God. We should submit to him. As servants, we should obey him. So how is your obedience these days? Are you delighting in obeying God? But remember, obedience isn't the only goal. I would say that the goal is for God to be with his people. In fact, I've said it here many times, the biggest blessing in the Bible is the blessing of God, of God with us. That's the purpose of what God was doing in Exodus. Don't forget chapter 19, as you read the commandments of chapter 20, that God was drawing a people to himself, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. I think that God loves us so much that he wants us to be with him in a love relationship forever. So that's the purpose of the gospel message, that we could be cleansed so that we wouldn't have to stay in our sins and be always separated from God, but instead we can have forgiveness and we're brought into a relationship with God that lasts forever. It's quite a story that the Bible is putting together. It's a story of how we do life with God. But then one last thing for us to consider is that this came to us, remember? It was the words of God. So how is your heart doing towards the words of God? Do you love God's word? Jesus told us that we would be made holy by God's word. Jesus told us that we are to, to live on God's word. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God wants us to be with him forever, and that means that we should do our part to listen to the words that he has said. And in closing, I just want to show you two verses from Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses, and almost every single one of them mentions God's word in some way. And it's a worship song, it's a love song for God's word. I want to show you two verses. First is verse 16 that says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. And then verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate, I meditate on it all day long. So do you delight in and love God's word? Maybe your heart is in a different place right now. And maybe you just need to be reminded right now as you've heard the words from God that, that something different should be going on in your heart. You know what? If, if your heart doesn't love God's word right now, I just ask you to go to him and, and ask him to restore in you that delight in his word.
I will not neglect your word. That word neglect means forget. It can be easy for us to forget God's word, to get to the place where we're so busy with other things that we don't take time to meet with God and his word. But I love what the psalmist says there, and let us say it together. I will not neglect your word. And then to meditate on God's word. To meditate is to allow God's word to become part of us. It means not just simply having your set-aside quiet time where you read the Bible and then close it. It means allowing God's word to sink into your heart. And that might look different for every single one of us, but are you taking the time to meditate on God's word? That's been one of the takeaways for me in the last couple weeks, is to not just read God's word, but to think about what parts of it can I carry with me. As we walk with God in obedience and faith, we will experience that joy and that delight in Him and in His Word. It's what we were created for. So do you see that the story of the Bible here is how God wants to bring you to Himself? And as part of that, He wants us to serve Him, to obey Him, and to follow Him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you've given us your word and that your word teaches us who you are and how we can follow you. God, we thank you for the rules and the commands. I pray that we would have great delight in your word and that we would live our lives according to your ways, knowing that your way is best. So God, help our hearts. We may have come in here today with a a wrong attitude towards your commands with the wrong attitude towards your word but God I pray that you would do your work in our hearts to transform us and to give us that delight again in you and in your word and God I pray that as we delight in your word that we would worship you that we would have faith in you and that we would rejoice in the relationship that we can experience with you now and forever in Jesus name we pray Amen